So in our afternoon services moving forward, we're going to have a variety of content for you. Of course, uh, last week, Pastor Paul started with an introduction into the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith that was written in 1689. We're going to be systematically working through that when he's preaching. Uh, but the preaching duties on Sunday afternoons will be shared and be rotating between our elders and also some of the, the men that we're trying to build up in the church in that type of service. And so for those of us who are not working in the Southern or the Second Baptist London Confession of Faith, uh, we will be uh, for some time now tackling the Psalms. And uh, this is going to be giving us an opportunity uh, to mine some of the great riches that God has stored up for the saints in this collection of inspired worship. The book of Psalms was the songbook of the Old Covenant people, but it has not stopped being a powerful guide to our worship of the Lord now that Jesus has come and has inaugurated the new covenant through the cleansing power of Christ's blood. For those who have drawn near to God through faith and have by his great mercy been given eyes to see a clearer picture of who God is and what he has in store for his people, there should be a natural inclination to give glory to God. We should just naturally want to praise him for these things that he has shown us about himself and for the work that he has done in us. Just as the cherubim who were present around the throne in the Apostle John's vision in the book of Revelation, I'm reading from chapter 4, verse 8. It says, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so we are grateful that along with that chorus, we can praise our God and give him the glory that is due to his name. Our admiration and appreciation for the Lord can be expressed in many different ways, in obedient reverence, in prayer and studying the word of God and preaching that same word. All these glorify the Lord and are ways that the new covenant people are commanded to worship God. But of course, singing praises to our great God is one of our primary ways of expressing worshipful love to him. And what we sing to our God is of course also of utmost importance. These Psalms that we're gonna be studying through were penned by many different authors the largest contributor being King David. Uh, the Psalms, as we have them here, were probably compiled into five different books. There's five themes that run through the book of Psalm, and we'll talk about those more in detail in a future uh, sermon. But they were probably compiled maybe by Ezra after the exile, uh, at the end uh, of the exile when the Israelites were allowed to come back into Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the temple. They had to establish anew the cadence of worship in the land. And so I have no doubt that parts of Psalms were probably already in use before that time. Uh, but it would seem that the Psalms as we have it today was likely forged and canonized around the time of the return from the exile. So around the third uh, or fourth century BC. This book eventually became wildly or widely accepted as canon and a regular part of the temple worship and was later used in the synagogue assemblies as well. Now, these songs are not simply to entertain us. In fact, to grasp the value of the Psalms, we have to re-engineer the way we think about singing. We cannot think about these things in the same way that we would think about the kind of catchy music that makes up the soundtrack for most of modern culture today. These songs have a much higher calling they, they have a far holier purpose. They teach us about the true God. They tell the history of his working among his people. They point forward to the future events that God has in store for mankind with a particular emphasis in many places on the coming Messiah. And they remind us that those who reject the Psalms and all of God's word, those who reject God's decree and refuse to put their faith in him will not stand in the day of judgment. God has justice in store for them and he will not stand for his name being sullied, nor will he stand for the affliction of his people by those who don't honor God. And that is expressed again and again in the book of the Psalms. So we're going to begin this morning at the beginning of Psalms in the first Psalm. So if you'll open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, I'm going to read this out loud and we're going to consider this introductory hymn to the longest book in the Bible. Psalm chapter one, verse one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we will continue on in our exposition of this passage. Lord God, we thank you for your blessings over us, and we pray, God, that we would have sober minds to process and absorb this mighty word. Help us to consider who this blessed man of chapter one of the Psalms is, and help us to desire to be blessed in the same ways through faith in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm one begins with the words, blessed is the man. It would be entirely natural for our minds um, to be brought immediately to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when we hear those words, blessed are the man. Because in Matthew chapter five, Jesus begins to describe the people of God in the new covenant in terms of showing us how they are blessed. Matthew 5, 3 through 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Along with eight or nine more beatitudes, depending on how you count them and number them. So here is the kind of person whom the psalmist tells us can be counted as blessed. To be blessed is to be happy, but in a special kind of way to be happy for the right reasons. So let me differentiate between blessedness and happiness. A thief who robs a home and makes off with a great amount of cash and jewelry without getting caught is likely a very happy thief. But could we rightly say that that thief is blessed? No, because the activity that he just engaged in is contrary to the word of God. We cannot consider that God's blessed hand is on the work that that man just did. God does not look upon sinful actions with blessing or approval. So to be blessed is to be happy because of good things that God has done for you and to live in such a way that God is happy with your willingness to obey the covenant that he has brought you into. That's what being blessed means. That is why the poor in spirit in chapter 5 of Matthew verse 3 are properly thought of as blessed, even though we wouldn't think of somebody being poor in spirit as blessed. But they're blessed because they're happy to admit that they're lacking in spiritual strength, they're lacking in maturity, and so this drives them to acknowledge the greatness of God and to appeal to His greater strength and to trust in His maturity to lead them and guide them. That is why those who mourn over their sin and the consequences of sin in the world are blessed for they are saying amen to what God has already declared about their wickedness. And they're, comf- uh, they're comforted by the victory that God the Son has won over their sin. That is why those who are meek, humble, and teachable are considered happy by Jesus. Because despite the lowliness of their heart, God has promised to lift them up and to grant them a place in his family and the inheritance of new life. So the first psalm in the Psalter challenges us to think about what it means to be blessed to be truly happy as those who put God first in our lives. Is happiness a primary aim for people who live in our world today? It's almost silly to ask the question, isn't it? I think the vast majority of the world that we live in today, people are living primarily to appease their desire and appetite for happiness. Happiness for some has become the ultimate goal of existence to which all other things must become subordinate. So much so that we live in a society where it's becoming almost okay to think if someone is not happy, why shouldn't they just be able to end their own life and exit out of this world? And that's a dark thought to think that that life has become such a lowly thing to people that if it's not a happy life, then it's not worth living. There's much wrong with this. For instance, what makes people happy is often what even the wicked society that we live in would agree is objectively wrong and evil. So if somebody is a violent person and someone cuts them off the road on the road and they, they drive over to the side, chase them down and pull them out of their car and beat them up, they probably got a thrill from that. They probably got a, a feeling that they were superior. They felt happy about being able to put that person in their place. But what they did was objectively wrong. 
If life is just about being happy, well, that man just did what life was all about. But in reality, we know that what he did was violate the law of God and put somebody who bears the image of God through much suffering for no reason. So happiness cannot be the point of life. There must be something bigger. Happiness is part of the equation, but it is not the end-all, be-all. True happiness is not the end of our existence. We would do better to think of it instead as more of a fruit of good existence. Blessed happiness is a product of the main thing that we are to really live for, which is our relationship with God Almighty, being right, being at peace. When our relationship with God is working well, then true happiness can be experienced in our lives. And so too is happiness truly happiness when the source of that happiness is the triune God. So a key question that Psalm 1 seeks to answer for us is this. Where is our blessedness derived from? As we begin to break down the parts of this short poem, it is interesting to note that it is built in such a way that it is very balanced in form. The writers um, who use this technique, I'm way behind, sorry, I'm terrible at running my own slides. Writers who use this technique um, call it chiasm. Chiasm is sort of a balanced structure where the first part of the poem coincides with the last part of the poem. And the second part of the poem coincides with the fourth part of the poem. So our pattern in this poem is going to be a negative point in verse 1, a positive point in verse 2, another positive point to parallel it in verse 3, and then a negative point in the last three verses to parallel the first point. This is just kind of one of the ways that the writers in the Old Testament often ordered their thoughts to make them more memorable and to give them a sense of beauty. The blessed man is first described to us in the negative sense. In other words, we're told what he does not do. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners, and he does not uh, sit in the seat of scoffers. At first glance, these three uh, prohibitions seem to be saying the same exact thing. But I believe that each of these three actions represents a downward progression towards utter disobedience to God. Christians live right alongside those who disregard God, and they, they live with them every day. It is the Lord's design not to pluck us out of the world once He regenerates our heart and turns us away from sin and gives us a new life, but rather to keep us here and to equip us so that we might impact the world for His holy glory. And so as we walk through life and are continually exposed to worldviews, that have no regard for God, sometimes those worldviews have the negative effect of rubbing off on us. That godless counsel, that earthly wisdom, if you will, that sees no need for God is all around us. And by sheer exposure to it, we may from time to time find ourselves picking up on that counsel and considering it as true for no other reason than the majority of people believe it and live by it. It is common. If you're careful, you might begin walking in those sinful ways. You might begin to import some off-color words into your normal way of speaking, even taking the name of the Lord in vain without much thought because you work in that environment and you don't recognize that you don't belong in that environment. So as that language is constantly on your radar, you start to pick up on bits and pieces of it. You might find yourself loosening your standards and speaking like the lost world speaks. You might begin to think about sexuality, not as a heavenly gift that is designed to complement the covenant of marriage, but as a recreational activity that people who are attracted to each other simply engage in for the thrill. This might be reflected in the kinds of things that you watch for entertainment or by the kinds of clothes you choose to wear. So as we find that there's this, this cultural current, if you will, that's constantly pulling us in a direction away from the Lord, if we are not vigilant, being exposed to this current can sometimes cause us to drift in that direction. Before you know it, you're being swept away. You're walking in the direction of those who don't look upon the cross with a heavy heart, but live as if there is no heavenly consequence to their moral actions. And when you've walked a little while in those ways, you might become so accustomed to some of them that you begin to adopt them as your own ways. And then you find yourself taking a stand 
in defense of some of those sinful actions. We have Christians who defend the practice of abortion because the world around them has shouted so persistently that this is a woman's personal right. Yet they have forgotten to stop and think that the unborn baby in the womb of that woman is also a person and has rights too, rights that are absolutely wiped away and and forgotten as soon as that mother decides to end the life of that beating heart. That those babies don't have a voice or a voice to, uh, or a, an advocate to stand up for themselves is a tragedy. And yet there are those who call upon Christ who would defend the practice of abortion. Some after walking in the counsel of the wicked for a time, uh, you might find them on their social media page putting a rainbow background up during a certain month of the year. Not that they themselves are gay or consider themselves homosexual, but because they have come to ideologically believe that what God has to say about our sexuality shouldn't necessarily restrict the freedoms of those who choose to ignore God's word. They have, perhaps without knowing it, taken a stand with sinners against the the law of God. So you can see how walking in the way from time to time then translates into standing in in the way of sinners. And over time, this, this kind of integration of lost thinking with biblical thinking might actually harden a person's heart to the point where they are firmly sitting in the seat of a scoffer. The position of one who is so firmly entrenched in unbiblical thought that that they're to the point where they'll even boldly scoff against the scripture that calls out their their sin. In order to walk and stand in the ways of the world, one has to eventually turn their back on the scriptures of God because those are the scriptures that declare the ways of the wicked to be evil. And so he who sits in the seat of the scoffer begins to criticize God's ways, his church, and his holy word. So let's take a minute to evaluate our understanding of what it means when the scripture refers to the wicked here. The first image we may think of when we hear the mention of a wicked man is that of a hardened criminal, a filthy degenerate, one who loves to wallow in the mud of iniquity and is just as likely to stab you in the back as look you in the eye. We think of the worst examples of humanity and we place upon them this title that almost shocks you a little. We call them the wicked people. But let us remember that the wicked person in God's evaluation is not only the dregs of society, not only the ice cold drug dealer or the mafia kingpin or the violent abuser, the wicked according to God, and make sure you understand this, is he who cares nothing for God. That is the wicked man, the person who lives their entire life or the majority of their life without a care towards the holy things of the Lord. By that measure, the world is much more full of wicked people than most would care to believe. And these wicked people, many of whom live relatively normal lives, people who you may even think of as good neighbors or fine coworkers because they do you no obvious harm and they're, they're not on the run from the police all the time. Nevertheless, they have very little to no regard for God who is the true author of goodness. And disregarding God, that alone is enough to be called a wicked person. God created them and yet they give him no meaningful respect. God restrains evil in the world so that they might experience a lesser sense of happiness from time to time, and yet no meaningful gratitude is expressed towards this creator. God made them for the express purpose of worshiping him, and yet from them he receives no adoration, zero praise. And by that measure, whether they ever break a law of the United States of America or not, they are wicked people. Until Christ has laid a hold of you, the title of wicked belongs to you. And that means that all of us were wicked. All of us were walking in the ways of evil until God redeemed us from our lostness through Christ. Which one of us, though we may try with all our might, which one of us can say that we have never walked, nor stood, nor sat in the position of the sinner? The ever important distinction between the law and the gospel is something that we have to reckon with here in Psalm 1. How can we be, or how can we hope to be blessed if the condition of blessedness that is laid out here for us in Psalm 1 is that we totally forsake the ways of the world? We turn aside from sinners. We never harden our hearts to the the word of truth or scoff at it. 
Who, who knows the law of God and never breaks it? I can't say that I could count myself in that category. The psalm describes the covenant of the law, and we are all failures at keeping the law of God. So can any of us be blessed? Some of the early church fathers, including Justin Martyr, rightly approached this psalm with a new covenant hermeneutic, as well as some of the later reformers. Martin Luther really uh, ascribed to this and gives a good defense of it. They looked at Psalm 1 and made some observations that can help our minds move from the law, which condemns, to the gospel of grace, which saves. Because if we just simply read this first verse, the first few verses, and we, we see that, wow, a blessed man is one who never walks in the ways of the wicked, then how can we be blessed? This is, this is the, the law that condemns us. But, but listen to this exposition of the words here. The wicked, the sinners, the scoffers that are mentioned in the beginning of the psalm, they're all described in the plural, correct? But did you notice how the blessed man is described? He's described in the singular. The psalmist does not say blessed are those who do not walk in the ways of the wicked. He says, blessed is the man. And the article that is used to describe this blessed man, it is not the indefinite article. He sa- it doesn't say any man. It doesn't say a man who walks not in the ways of the wicked is the blessed man. It says the man. The definite article is used here. So the early church fathers suggested that this psalm is not simply a call for us to do what we cannot do in our own power. It is not merely a reminder to us that by our own might, we can never earn blessedness. Rather, it is a celebration well in advance of his coming of the one sinless, spotless man who was born of woman, was born under the law, and by the power of God, succeeded to keep the whole entirety of the law. Jesus never walked in the counsel of the wicked, though they tried constantly to convince him to do so. Jesus never stood in the way of sinners, though he spent time around them and ministered to them and declared the truth to these sinners. He never stood in their ways. Jesus never sat in the seat of scoffers, but rather was put to death by those who scoffed at him, who refused to believe that he was sent of God. Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1 in its truest sense of the word. And it is only through his great work that we can be blessed men and women too. What differentiates the woman or the wicked in God's evaluation and the righteous is not, it's not the behaviors and moral performance of the, of the uh, blessed man. No, our best efforts may make a person more palatable citizen among other wicked men and women. But our best efforts at being holy and righteous fall infinitely short of making us what God would call righteous. Our status as righteous and blessed one is based solely on God's blessedness upon us, Christian. That's it. Have we been blessed with the grace of Jesus Christ? If we have, then we now find ourselves through his wonderful free gift in the category of one who is blessed of God. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what is, what is spoken of here in Titus 2? And if I really loved you guys, I'd be keeping up with the slides. I'm just a terrible pastor here. So Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1. And there it goes. It's running away from me. Technology. Okay. There we go. Titus. First, we see that God brings salvation. For it is not to be found among men. If we are to be saved, God has to deliver salvation to our doorstep. We're not going to seek high and low and find it. We're not going to fabricate it of our own. We're not going to make a way where there was no way. Only God can bring us the salvation that leads us properly to him. Secondly, we see in verse 12 that he trains us. Those whom he saves, he trains to do what we could not otherwise do. 
He trains us to renounce the sinful way that we used to walk in. This way that is so native to us due to our connection through covenant with Adam, the first man. So we are trained, we are we're taught to be self-controlled. He sanctifies and purifies us that we might live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the midst of a present evil age where there is sinfulness abounding around us. He teaches us to live differently and set apart so that we might be counted holy as God is holy. And then he promises to return to us, to judge the wicked once and for all, and to bring to us a new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell forever in heavenly bodies. He accomplishes our redemption through offering up himself, and he washes us clean by his very blood, setting us apart for himself, that as his people we might be zealous for good works. We see the mighty victory of God in this passage. First, the blessed man is described in the negative, what he does not do. Secondly, the blessed man is described in terms of the positive, in terms of what he does do. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And this is an interesting and bold statement, especially declared in the midst of an old covenant people who were seeing through the law. What does Paul tell us about the law? What was it meant to do? It was meant to sting our hearts and to help us to see that we are incapable of keeping this law. Again and again, covenant Israel falls short of obedience to the Lord God. And again and again, they spiral out of control until God reigns them in. And yet here, the very first psalm of this large psalter of songs that the church was supposed to sing, that the people of God, rather, in the Old Covenant was supposed to sing, is a song about being blessed if you're obedient. How can the law be to us something that doesn't condemn our hearts if we cannot keep it perfectly? Only if the Lord God himself has promised to give us someone who will keep it perfectly in our place. So to the unfaithful man who cannot keep the law of God, then this law of God is a condemnation that cannot be loved. But to the man who tries to achieve righteousness on his own, it is also frustrating. It is a bar too far to, meet, to reach. But to the faithful man, to the one who trusts that God will make a way where he cannot make a way, the law becomes a companion and a helpmeet to those who follow its author. What makes the law of God a delight to us? Well, first of all, it's a delight to us because it is the law of the one who has become our Lord. When God gives us a new heart and causes us to love him, then we will love the things that come from him. Being God's law, it, is direct, it directs us towards God's character. And so as we see the law laid out for us in the words of Scripture, we begin to see a picture, an outline of who God is. We should love the things that belong to our God because we love our God. I feel terrible for those who are so enamored with the idea that salvation by grace has abolished the law entirely. Those who, who walk in the antinomian way of life, that they can only see the law as a terrible taskmaster. And of course it was when we were not in Christ. But having entered into the, the blessed union of a new covenant with God, one that is completely dependent upon Christ's performance and not our own, the role of the law has changed. The role only condemns us for so long as we see it as the ladder that we must use to try and climb to get to heaven. But if salvation is of the Lord, then the law is no longer our condemnation. Now it is truly the companion of the one who believes in Jesus Christ, the, the one blessed man. The law provides security. It gives us peace, guarding us from the destructive consequences of sin. It shows us the ways of our Savior, the blessed man, and how he conquered on our behalf. With his help, we now endeavor to walk in those same ways. If Jesus had not kept the fullness of the law, he would not qualify to be our Savior. But praise God, in every temptation that he experiences, just like our temptations that we experience day to day, he withstood those temptations. Even the Old Testament reader, I believe, who did not know to name the name of Christ, still knew that their hope was in trusting in Yahweh. And those Old Testament saints who put their faith in, in mighty God were saved by the blood of Jesus Christ preemptively, though they couldn't call him Jesus. The blessed man meditates on the law of God both day and night. And that, this is not some rigid command for daily and nightly meditation. 
It is simply a way of saying that all day long, the word is appropriate to be on our minds. That we should be thinking about it as the sweet message of our Savior, as a great guide for life that, that looks after our way and keeps us from the harm that our heart would take us to. A precedence for the whole of Psalms, which puts great emphasis on the blessing of God's word to his covenant people, is this first psalm that tells us that the law of God is the delight of those who trust in Yahweh. And so let us love the law of God, having known that the law itself was fulfilled in our Savior Jesus Christ. When we meditate on the law, what are we doing? We're not just breezing through it. We're not just reading it to get it read. But we're thinking about each and every word. We are slowing down as much as we need to so that this reading doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. When we meditate on the law of God, we see how this law of God is an expression of the God who wrote it. That the law of God reflects the goodness of God and tells us the kind of character that our Creator has. When we meditate on the law of God, we think about how it applies particularly to our own hearts. We think humbly, is there something in me that needs to change? Is there a misconception that needs to be made right? Is there a crooked path that needs to be straightened? May the law iron me out and make me more of a finished product in the sight of the Lord God. This comes through careful consideration and meditation in the Word. And so the one who loves the law, this is not a tedious task because it is not tedious to spend extra time in the thing that you love. And if your heart is not there yet, if you, if you feel that it's a struggle for you to read or that you were never taught to really appreciate deep, thoughtful meditation on the words of God, then pray that the Lord would help your mind to think that way about His Scripture. Pray that He would give you an appetite for the things that have eternal value that He's revealed in the words of the prophets and the apostles and, and in, through Christ Himself. So that was an opening negative. Secondly, we get the positive things uh, that the blessed man does. And then the third thing that is delivered to us is another positive, the blessed effects of living in God's instruction. This thing hates me. There we go. Okay. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's talking about Christ, isn't it? <laughs> Who else is constantly yielding good fruit? All of us will have fruitful seasons. Lord willing, God can use our lives for good things, but it is Christ who never withers, who is always strong and prospers in all that he does. But this blessed man who loves the law of God is like a tree. And this illustration of a tree has some, some strong meaning, and some of it's a little personal to me. I remember being in college. I had a roommate, and this roommate had claimed to follow Christ and said that he was a believer. We started sharing an apartment together with a few other guys, and uh, I really got to know this, this guy, and I, you know, I was really hoping to help him grow in his faith. But halfway through our time that semester, he began to really doubt the things of God. And you could tell that in him was a great skepticism. This was a man who was blessed with a very brilliant mind, but it was one that so easily was fixed on anything other than Jesus that it ended up being like poison to him. And so he became very critical of Christians and only loosely, loosely associated himself with the church. He began entangled, entangled with some particular sins. Um, and I began to try to reach out to this young man and to, to challenge him and to minister to him. I wanted to be a good friend to him in Christ. And this, uh, this guy had a, a habit of looking around and, and assessing all the people in his life. It's as if he was sitting on a throne and he could just analyze everybody around him and, and cast them in a certain category. And one day he looked at me and he said, you know what you are, Nick? He said, you're like a tree. You're like a tree. Steady, predictable. And I knew that by saying these things to me, he was talking down to me. He thought that his way of thinking, which was being unloosed from the word of God, uh, that loved to explore and think beyond the boundaries that God had set for him, was now a new freedom that he had never experienced before. And that me and my little Christian mindset was missing out on the great, uh, the great palette of colors in the world. And so he was talking down on me. But as he called me a tree, I thought of Psalm 1. 
And I thought, I am happy to be a tree as long as God plants me next to the stream of living waters. I don't need to go where he's going. I don't need to walk in the ways of sinners, even if they receive a thrill from it from time to time. I'm not ashamed to be called of Christ. And if being a tree makes me stable and gives me one place in the world where I can stand for the truth, then I will take that as a compliment. But Christ is the true tree, rooted and secure, able to withstand many forces, much time, much weather. The tree is blessed with what Charles Spurgeon called privileged placement. I love that little phrase. It is placed right beside the stream of living water so that constantly its roots are absorbing the things of goodness from God that would cause it to have what it needs to bear beautiful and loving fruit to the world. Like the fourth seed of Jesus' parable of the soils, the tree is planted not on the path, nor among the rocky soil, nor among the weeds, but in a good little piece of land where rich soil is is ready to encourage the the growth and blooming of that seedling. The root of this tree benefits from dwelling, uh, drawing their nutrients, rather, from the stream of water that God provides for his covenant people. And it's a beautiful picture, if you will, of continual generation of goodness. This tree is provided for so that it might bring forth provision to others and is capable of bearing fruit as our previous passage in Titus told us that we should be zealous for good works. He who is blessed of God should have a desire to bear fruit for him of a spiritual nature. This tree is lasting and steadfast. The quality of the provision given to this tree is so good that its leaves will not wither. I don't think what that is saying is that the Christian who is blessed of God will never go through seasons where we're not bearing fruit. Unfortunately, as human beings who are not perfect, there will be seasons where our hearts are colder. There will be seasons when we don't feel like we're being effective to the Lord. But God uses even those seasons of hurt and leanness and struggle, those seasons of bare limbs, to get us to the point where we can once again bear fruit. God's will will continue to come to pass in the lives of those who trust in him. Fruitfulness will return. The fourth and last description is a negative again to parallel the first description. And this is the negative results of living in defiance of God's law. And so four ver- or three verses here, starting in verse four. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the, in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Those who disregard the word of God may not feel the consequences of their rebellion right away. But the psalmist assures us that the one who is in charge of metering justice will not be negligent to his charge. In time, every wicked, every sinner, every scoffer who is not in Christ will like chaff that the wind drives away be dispersed with. Now what is chaff? Chaff is like a lightweight byproduct that's attached to either the stock or the grain. And it plays a part in the maturing process of the plant, ironically, but it is not edible and it's not useful at the time of harvest. So think about a corn ear that you'll buy down at the corner market. What does it come in? It comes in a sheath and nobody eats the husk. You take the husk away, you throw it in the garbage. So chaff is not useful for us. It's of less substance than the wheat or the grain. And so in the times of harvest in the wheat uh, fields, they would gather up all of the wheat and they would begin to use a winnowing fork to throw it in the air. And as they did so, the heavier wheat granules would detach from the chaff and the wind, either natural or created by someone waving a giant rug, would cause the chaff to blow away from the more valuable, meaty part of that grain, which would fall then again to the ground. Chaff would be swept up and it would typically be tossed into the fire as a useless commodity. Chaff is also a common way for God to illustrate the powerlessness of the sinful against the judgments of God. So I have no doubt that John the Baptist had, his, had this psalm in mind when he wrote about the final works of God. He said in Luke chapter 3, if I can move us along there. I don't know. I'm about to give up on these slides. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, 
John answered, saying to them, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with the unquenchable fire. Though the fallout of sin is not immediately obvious at the time of rebellion, a reckoning will prove the error of the sinful man's ways. Verse 5 again. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked, though they are allowed to persist for a time, ultimately will not stand. They will be brought low by the final judgment of our Lord. And this is in contrast, perhaps, to the earlier image of the tree, which stands steadfast and mighty. The wicked, though they have thought they had freedom their whole lives, will one day see that all they were sowing for themselves was death. Not only will the wicked perish, but the way of the wicked will perish. Friends, that is a wonderful blessing to know that when we enter into glory, not only will the wicked who have hurt us and have dishonored our God's name be put in their proper place, but the ability to sin will be fully and totally removed from us. The way of wickedness will be a thing of the past. What a blessed assurance to the people of God. And so again, we see here in this first psalm of the Psalter a trend that is set that will carry on through the next 149 psalms. We won't be going through them one at a time uh, in chronological order. We'll bounce around a little bit. But the word of God is constantly proclaimed through the Psalms as being good for the one whose faith is in Yahweh. The man who trusts in God will benefit and will become fruitful by seeking his word. And we do that through the blood of Jesus Christ, who fulfills all the requirements of this holy law. Anybody have any questions? We uh, have about 10 minutes left for discussion. If anybody wanted to bring anything up that was mentioned in the sermon or add to what was expounded on. Brandon. Right, to meditate on the law is simply to dwell on these things. So the law that you have read, the word that you have brought into your mind, thinking about ways to apply that in life is meditating on the law of God. When we are trying to raise up our children and we're trying to do so according to the law that we have exposed our minds and our hearts to, that will help order the way that we care for our kids. And so we're meditating on the law of God as we offer that service to them. So anything that we're doing where the law of God is actively a part of what we're thinking and how we're trying to interact with our world. That's meditation on the law of God. You can meditate on the law of God through singing too, singing the praises of God. If we're singing songs that rightly express the things that the word tells, to, uh, tells us, and that's sometimes a beautiful way of meditating on the word of God. People get thrown off by that word meditate because it's often associated with Hinduism or Eastern practices, but meditation in a Christian sense, is far different. Eastern meditation is an emptying of the thoughts, is getting rid of all thought from your head. That's the goal. Whereas meditation, in a Christian sense, is filling our thoughts with God's thoughts, letting what he has revealed to us infiltrate every corner of our mind so that it becomes saturated with the good things that God has given to us, the things that we we can trust. Yeah, Tony. Mm. Now I go, wow, you know. I, yeah. I, you know, when you broke it down about blessed and, you know, you broke it down who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stand. Now, I, for a long time, I would read throughout the years Psalm 1 and go, okay. Okay, you know, I thought it was one way, but then yeah. when you explained it, it just went, that's what it means. And I go, you are that person. You were that person. You are, you know. Christ, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because we re, when we read the psalm, if we just read it as like, well, here's all you got to do. Be good all the time and you're going to be blessed. 
Now, that's not really encouraging to us unless we're so full of our own pride that we think, I can do that. We've all been there before, right? We've all convinced ourselves that we can be the good man, that we can be the blessed one. But really, the true joy of this psalm is knowing that all those requirements were met by someone better than us. And that in his loving generosity, he gives us the benefit of it. He meets the standard and says, here, I'm going to share the prize with you. So what a Psalm, joy. So would Psalm 2 apply to us, whereas Psalm 1 applied it to Jesus? Does, apply, does verse 2 apply to Jesus as well, or does it apply oh, to Oh, yes. God? I think that Jesus delights in the law because he well, wrote the law. I right? Yeah. yeah. Given. Yeah, absolutely. But is it and talking he, about us as well? But his delight, you know. So the whole Psalm is fulfilled in Christ. Mm-hmm but then becomes to us not like a standard that we have to make, but now it's, it's a pattern for us to follow. It is, it is the precedence of Christ that we want to live towards that, but our salvation doesn't hinge on it anymore. We're blessed regardless of the fact that we couldn't keep it entirely. We're blessed because he did. And so now, now that there's a relief to our hearts because we don't have to anxiously think, did I do enough? We don't have to strive enough? to be good anymore. Yeah, I mean, we do strive to be good. Well, you know what I mean. You know, we, we, we love the law, the law of God because it, it, it pleases him when we walk in the ways of the Lord. But because of Christ, we're pleasing to him even when we fail because we belong to him. And just like when my children don't listen to me or don't obey me, not that they ever do that, right? They're angels. But every once in a while, if they don't, it doesn't make me not love them. They're mine. They belong to me. And so I love them despite the disobedience. And when you belong to Lord and covenant with Christ then now he has given you a righteousness that's not your own and you become a part of the family and you will remain a part of the family. So there's much more relief and joy when you look at this as being fulfilled in the Son of God instead of thinking that this is my task that I have to, have to fulfill in order to earn salvation. So when this was written, by, I, I want to assume it's by David. It doesn't give the name of who wrote that. Yeah, this one doesn't line it out. So unknown unknowns or known to them, they were talking about the pre-incarnate Jesus at that yeah, time yeah. of what he was going to do for us sinners. Right. And we have to remember that's really only like logical if we think of the author of Scripture being God himself, that he is the one who inspires in a holy way the writing of these men. And that's called having a New Testament hermeneutic, where we look at the Old Testament saying that God has shown us more in the New Testament that helps us better understand the Old Testament. Not everyone approaches the scripture that way. There are many who will go back and say, well, you can't interpret the scripture like that because they didn't have Jesus yet. You have to interpret the way that they interpreted it. But honestly, I think David knew about Jesus. He knew that the seed of David was going to come. And so there were some that, that had a God fuller understanding. Yeah, God and we're going to see, that's right, we, we're going to see example and evidence after evidence through the Psalms that so much of the Psalms points right to Jesus Christ right to Jesus Christ. So I don't think it was, I don't think when the, the earliest person read these Psalms that they were thinking, oh, that's the Son of God. But they were recognizing that through the graceful connection that they had with the Lord God, that he would make this covenant keeping possible. Because we all know that we can't keep these things the way that we should. Yes, Chris. Uh, I, made a, I made a note about Psalm 1 um, last year. And uh, I would just like to read you my note. Yeah, good. says this is only for like the first verse these seem like beatitudes I would think that a blessing is a show and a sign of favor from God himself so as the psalm goes on to say blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly it makes me think that because God has shown the person favor by a divine revelation he or she knows not to and how not to take bad advice from bad personalities. Going on in verse 1, it says, Nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. It seems that you know someone is in favor with God when he, God, has given them the knowledge to also not make the same mistakes as haters of God often do. That being copy what other haters of God do for dumb reasons. 
Now, when I think of sitting in the seat of the scornful, I think that the one who does not rest in the throne in the commitment and the contentment of being evil and being in an evil anti-God state of being. Instead, they always want more for one, always wanting more Jesus in their life. To sum up this whole first verse, I would say that a godly person does not walk in evil, actively living offensively against God, stand for evil, actively living in defense of evil against God, rest in evil, actively relaxing and delighting in a life of whoredoms against God. What do you think about that? Okay, yeah. We did speak about the Beatitude connection at the beginning of the sermon. Um, so I, I definitely think there's a clear, uh, a clear path from what is written here in Psalm 1 and the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I, w- I would say that in summary, basically you're looking at two ways of living life. You're either scorning the law of God and disrespecting it, or you're embracing it and living according to it. And the only way you can do the latter is if Christ has changed your heart through grace. So when Christ has grabbed a hold of us and God has given us a love for him uh, by bringing us into a covenant with him, then uh, yes, we will reject the wickedness of the world and we'll avoid the foolishness that comes with it and the, the judgments that fall upon those who scoff at the law of God. Yeah. Do, you, do you think I, what I said was like pretty accurate? Yeah, that's pretty good. It's good to write notes like that. When you're studying the scripture, that's one of the ways of meditating on the scripture is by having a notebook next to you and just writing your thoughts out next to that and then comparing. And it's interesting also to see how you grow in your understanding of the word. I, uh, I, I keep a student Bible that I had when I was in high school. And every once in a while, I'll open it up and I'll look at all the notes I was writing in it. And I think, man, I didn't know anything. You know, I make all these, con- draw all these conclusions and make all these bold statements that were completely wrong. Some of them were heretical. And I think to myself, wow, I'm so glad that I was under better preaching, you know, and over time it started to like unravel some of those ideas that I just came up with my, on my own. Uh, but God is systematically sanctifying his people and, and day by day he purifies us with the water of his word. So what a blessing to be able to, to have this scripture available to us always. All right, church, well, it's 3.30. Um, we are grateful for you coming and spending this time with us this afternoon. I don't know if the Eagles won or the Niners won. We'll leave that in God's hands. But whoever did, be blessed and have a wonderful rest of your Sunday.